few years ago, I left the small town I grew up in to take a job at a megachurch in a big city. I rented a room from an old family friend, but over time I began to realize that I was losing something I never even knew I had. I began to realize I was completely anonymous. I didn't know anyone in any gas station, and I didn't know anyone in any restaurant, and none of them knew me. I didn't even know my neighbors. I never spoke to them. This is sadly incredibly common. Today I'm going to read a piece from a book called Lost Connections. When I was a child, something unexpected happened to my parents. My father grew up in a tiny village in the Swiss mountains, and my mother grew up in a small working-class Scottish town. Then, when I was a baby, we moved to a place called Edgware. It was the last tube stop on the northern line, a suburban sprawl of detached and semi-detached houses built on what used to be called London's Green Edges. If you fall asleep on a train and find yourself there, you'll see lots of houses, some fast food joints, a park, and lots of decent, likable, alienated people hurrying through them. When my parents moved in, they tried befriending people in the neighborhood just the way they would have in the places they were from. It was as natural to them as breathing, but when they tried to do this, they were perplexed. In Edgeware, people weren't hostile. We knew our neighbors to smile at, but that was it. Any attempt at engagement was shut down. Life was meant to happen, my parents learned slowly, inside your house. I did not regard this as unusual. It was all I ever knew but my mother never got used to it. Where is everyone? She asked. Loneliness hangs over our culture today like a thick smog. More people say they feel lonely than ever before. In the mid-70s, a young researcher named John was listening to his professors, some of the best in the world, but there was something he couldn't understand. When they tried to explain human emotions and why they change, they seemed to focus on one thing, what happens inside your brain. They didn't look at what was happening in your life. When he raised these questions, his mentors were puzzled. They said, even if it was relevant, they are not fundamental. John never forgot these questions. He puzzled over them for years until one day in the 90s, he finally thought of a way he might begin to study them in more detail. He began the simplest study he could think of. John and his colleagues gathered 100 strangers to take part in a straightforward experiment that no one had tried before. If you were one of the people taking part, you were told to go out and spend a few days living your normal life, only with a few tweaks. You had to wear a cardiovascular monitor and measure your heart rate, and you were given a beeper and some tubes. You left the lab. On the first day of the experiment, when the beeper beeped, which as it turned out was nine times a day, you would have to stop your everyday business and write down two things. You had to know how lonely or connected you felt and second, you had to record your heart rate. On the second day of the experiment, you went through the same process, except this time, when you heard the beeper, you would spit into a tube, seal it, and keep it to hand into the lab. John was trying to figure out exactly how stressful it is to be lonely. Nobody knew. But when you're stressed, your heartbeat goes up, and your saliva becomes flooded with a hormone called cortisol. So this experiment could finally measure how big the effect was. When John and his colleagues added up the data, they were startled. Feeling lonely, it turned out, caused your cortisol level to soar, as much as some of the most disturbing things a human can experience. Becoming acutely lonely, the experiment found, was as stressful as experiencing a physical attack. It is worth repeating. Becoming deeply lonely 
seem to cause as much stress as being punched by a stranger. John started to dig to see if other scientists had discovered similar things. A professor named Sheldon Cohen, he learned, had carried out a study in which he took a bunch of people and recorded how many friends and healthy social connections each of them had. He then took them into a lab and deliberately exposed them with their knowledge to the cold virus. What he wanted to know was, would the isolated people get sicker than connected people? It turned out that they were three times more likely to catch the cold than people who had lots of close connections. Another scientist, Lisa Bergman, followed isolated and highly connected people over nine years to see whether one group was more likely to die than the other. She discovered that isolated people were two to three times more likely to die during that period. Almost everything becomes more fatal when you are alone. Loneliness itself, John slowly discovered, seemed to be deadly. When they added up the figures, John and other scientists found that being disconnected from people had the same effect on your health as being obese, which was, until then, considered the biggest health risk in the developed world. As he made these discoveries, John began to ask why. Why would loneliness cause depression and anxiety? He came to suspect that there was a good reason. Human beings first evolved on the savannas of Africa, where we lived in small hunter-gatherer tribes of a few hundred people or less. You and I exist because those humans figured out how to cooperate. They shared their food, they looked after the sick. They were able to take down very large beasts, John points out, because they worked together. They made sense as a group. Every pre-agricultural society we know about has the same basic structure. Against harsh odds, they barely survive, but the fact that they survive at all is due to a dense web of social contexts and the vast number of reciprocal commitments they maintain. In this state of nature, connection and social cooperation did not have to be imposed because nature is connection. Now imagine on one of those savannas you became separated from the group and were alone for a long period of time. It meant that you were in terrible danger that you were vulnerable to predators, and that if you got sick, no one would be there to nurse you, and the rest of the tribe would be more vulnerable without you. Human instincts are not honed for a life on your own, but for a life like this in a tribe. Humans need tribes as much as bees need a hive. When my mother moved to Edgware and found that there was no community, only polite nods and closed doors, she assumed that there was something wrong with Edgware, but it turns out our little suburb was not unusual. For decades now, a Harvard professor named Robert Putnam has been documenting one of the most important trends of our time. There are all sorts of ways human beings come together to do things as a group, from sports teams to choirs to volunteer groups, and even just meeting regularly for dinner. He has been gathering figures for decades about how much we do all of these things, and he found they have been in a free fall. He gave an example that has become famous. Bowling is one of the most popular leisure activities in the U.S., and people used to do it in organized leagues. They would be part of a team that competed against other teams who would mingle and get to know each other. But today, people still bowl, but they do it alone. They're in their own lane, doing their own thing. Think about everything else we do together, like supporting your kid's school, let's say. 
In the 10 years between 85 and 95, he wrote, active involvement in community organizations fell by 45%. In just a decade, the years of my teens, when I was becoming depressed, across the Western world, we stopped banding together at a massive rate and found ourselves shut away in our own homes. We dropped out of community and turned inward, Robert explained. What this means is that people sense that they live in a community or even have friends they can count on has been plummeting. For example, social scientists have been asking a cross-section of U.S. citizens a simple question for years. How many confidants do you have? They wanted to know how many people you could turn to in a crisis or when something really good happens to you. When they started doing the study several decades ago, the average number of close friends an American had was three. But by 2004, the most common answer was none. It is worth pausing on that. There are now more Americans who have zero close friends than any other option. And it's not that we turned inward to our families. The research gathered shows that across the world, we've stopped doing stuff with them too. We eat together less, we watch TV together less, we go on vacations together less. Virtually all forms of togetherness, Putnam shows, became less common in the last quarter century. We do things together less than any humans who came before us. Long before the economic crash of 2008, there was a social crash in which we found ourselves alone and lonely far more of the time. The structures for looking out for each other, from the family to the neighborhood, fell apart. We disbanded our tribes, and we embarked on an experiment to see if humans can live alone. Many years into his experiments, John discovered a cruel twist in the story. When he put lonely people into brain scanning machines, he noticed something. They would spot potential threats within 150 milliseconds, while it took socially connected people twice as long to notice the same threat what was happening. Protracted loneliness causes you to shut down socially and to be more suspicious of any social contact. You become hypervigilant. You start to be more likely to take offense where none is intended and to be afraid of strangers. You start to be afraid of the very thing you need most. John called this a snowball effect as disconnection spirals into more disconnection. Lonely people are always scanning for threats because they unconsciously know that nobody is looking out for them. The tragedy John realized is that many depressed and anxious people receive less love as they become harder to be around. Indeed, they receive judgment and criticism, and this accelerates their retreat from the world. They snowball into an ever colder place. This piece goes on, but I just wanted to stop it there and talk for a minute. In Western capitalist societies, we have many blessings that we would not have if we did not live in Western capitalist societies. <laughs> this is so evident, I barely have to point it out. Capitalism allows competition. It allows economic freedom. It allows you to move up and down the ladder as your efforts and productivity chooses. In a collectivist society, the person at the top of the government runs every business along with the government. There is no competition. There is a complete monopoly of power. So I thank God that I live in America and that I live in a place where there is much more freedom, where there is much more individuality. But with that individualism 
comes loneliness. If you're born in a Western country, you are born into a society which has predisposed you towards loneliness. As everything becomes hyper-specific to our desires, we lose something. We lose a shared connection. We lose shared values. Not only that, but as our society has gone on, we have lost much of our religion. We have lost our religious identity, our moral identity. We do not even share the same moral values in the ways that we once did. But what can we do about it? Before I was married, I went to every Marvel movie with my friends. Now, I don't really like the Marvel movies, not then and not now. They don't really have stakes, and they feel very corporate and just not very real. But I went to every one of them because my friends wanted to go, because it was a social moment. It was a moment of social connection. And I could tell that there was something deeply meaningful in that. Even if I wouldn't get anything out of the movie, I would get something out of the conversation with those friends. Those friends helped me like crazy through a very isolating time. Because we would talk about life, we would talk about our struggles with girls, we would talk about God, we would talk about all kind of things that blessed me and allowed me to be a healthier person. But to get to those conversations, I had to participate in something, which is, again, admittedly, I'm making it seem like a chore, but something that was not tailored to my interest. I think that is the way out of much of the loneliness we experience. Participating in things that maybe are not perfectly suited to our interests, because we know that underneath them is something much more valuable than a movie that perfectly suits us. I got much more out of the conversations with those friends than I'll ever get out of a movie that is perfectly tailored to my interests and desires. Another part of this chapter spoke about how the thing that makes us feel connected is not being around other people. It's that sharing a moment with someone that you both care about. It's sharing things that are mutually vulnerable. I'm going to read one more piece from the book. Picture yourself being in a hospital bed in a busy ward. You are not alone, you're surrounded by patients, and you can push a button and have a nurse with you in a few moments. Yet almost everyone feels alone in that situation. Why is that? As he researched this, John discovered that there was a missing ingredient to loneliness and to recovering from it. To end loneliness, you need other people, but you also need something else. You also need, he explained to me, to feel that you are sharing something with the other person or the group that is meaningful to both of you. You have to be in it together, and it can be anything that you both think has meaning and value. When you're in Times Square on your first afternoon in New York, you're not alone, but you do feel alone because nobody there cares about you and you don't care about them. You aren't sharing your joy or your distress. You're nothing to those people and they're nothing to you. When you are a patient in a hospital bed, you're not alone, but help only flows one way. The nurse is there to help you, but you aren't there to help the nurse. And if you try, you'll be told to stop. A one-way relationship cannot cure loneliness. Only two-way or more relationships can do that. Loneliness isn't the physical absence of other people. It's the sense that you're not sharing anything that matters with anyone else. If you have lots of people around you, perhaps even a husband or wife, but you don't share anything that matters with them, you'll still be lonely.
to end loneliness, you need to have a sense of mutual aid and protection with at least one other person. I hope this piece has blessed you, and I hope that in some way this podcast has served as a place where you maybe feel less alone, where just by putting issues on the table that go through your brain, that it may serve as a reminder to you that you are not alone in what you're dealing with, and that many others are dealing with similar things. As we go through our normal day, may we remember that the average person we come in contact with is really struggling with loneliness. And with that in mind, may we do what we can to ease their suffering, to ease their loneliness, to make them feel that they are not alone, and that through that, we might not be either. I love you guys.